Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. How many of you like history? You know, good. most everybody. Whether it's a good documentary or a collection of artifacts or maybe even collecting sports memorabilia, as we can see, I think most of us enjoy some aspect of history. I know I don't know if Blake's here this morning, but uh, Grant recently had a chance to go over to Blake's house, and he has a bunch of old artifacts from World War I and World War II that I think his grandfather or great-grandfather had kept for them. And Grant, Grant was uh, amazed and so interested in all that, that he had. Uh, Joe and Barbara just recently uh, this summer went to Nashville and said that they took a Civil War tour, which you said was fascinating, right? Um, Terry and I were pretty much overwhelmed when we went to Israel and we stood in cities and synagogues where Jesus actually walked. I mean, talk about amazing. We actually went through a tunnel carved through stone that dated back to the times of Hezekiah. It was Hezekiah's tunnel. You can read about it in Scripture. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And I think that's the way it is. When, when, when history comes to life, I mean, it just is absolutely amazing. But we need to understand that it's also important. That, that history is not only interesting, but it's really important. Because learning from the past is what it helps us better prepare for the present. Understanding where we've been is what brings clarity to where we're going. As one person once said, they said, the best prophet of the future is the past. With that in mind, I think it might interest you to know that our passage this morning is the most comprehensive picture of world history found in the entire Bible. Now let that sink in a little bit. The most comprehensive picture of world history in all of the Bible. At the time, Daniel reveals events that were yet to come. But as we will read them today, these are events that have already been. So in other words, our history validates Daniel's prophecy. But hidden behind those historical facts is the one who writes our history. Because by revealing the future to Daniel, God is demonstrating that he's the one in control of that future. He's the one who establishes the details and determines the outcome. As Daniel will remind us in our passage this morning, he says, it is he who changes the times and the epics. Now, all of that is really amazing. And, and I want it to capture your mind and attention this morning. But at the same time, I don't want you to get too lost in the interpretation of Daniel's prophecy because, yes, it's important, but hear me on this, it's not the most important thing, okay? It's not even the main point. We need to look beyond the details and see the one whose wisdom and power has written it all, the one who is ultimately and finally in control, the one who works all things according to his perfect will to accomplish his glorious plan of redemption. 
that's the idea we had in mind last week when we read Jeremiah's promise. You remember when he says that, the, that, that God promises you a future and a hope? We need to understand that that hope is what's built in to his plan of redemption. And let's make that personal. We need to remember that when God had that plan of redemption in place, he had you and I in mind. He is the one who is constantly at work to reveal his love and grace and mercy, and he is inviting you in to share in that relationship for eternity. It's what was happening in Daniel's time, and it's still happening today. So listen closely to that voice. Let's pray as we look at God's word. Father, as we come to you this morning, we want to remind ourselves that you are the one who is ultimately in control of all of human history for all of eternity. That we were created in your image uniquely to be made into a, a place where we can live in a life-giving relationship with you. But Lord, we recognize that sin has separated us, that we are far from you in our own willful rebellion, but you, as a loving father, are inviting us home. You are inviting us to rest in your care, your faithful provision. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that it would cause us to all, in our hearts, just Take a deep breath and know that you're in control and that you will fulfill your plan of redemption for your people, for the praise and glory of your name. And we pray this in that name. Amen. If you would turn to Daniel chapter 2, and let's uh, look at this incredible chapter together. If you want to, you can follow along with me. I'd love for you to, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before him. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. So what we learn here is that King Nebuchadnezzar is having disturbing dreams, and it appears that it's the same dream over and over again. And I don't know about you, but you've probably had nights like that, right? I know I have. We have this dream, it's disturbing, you wake up, you kind of get yourself together, you go back to sleep, and then you resume the very same dream, right? It's as if your sleep has been haunted by something evil because you can't get away from it. It creates anxiety, even in the anticipation of going back to sleep. You just don't want to. Well, I think that's where we see Nebuchadnezzar. He's anxious, he's disturbed, so he calls forth every class of wise men that, see, that existed in that city. And he asked them to explain his dream. But we need to understand, this, this is their job. This is what they do. 
So, so they come before him confidently and they say, sure, tell us your dream and we will give you the interpretation. But this is where Nebuchadnezzar throws them a curve. Look at verse 5. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. (laughs) Okay, so we need to understand this was completely unexpected. Okay, this is something that the king has never done before. He was not only asking them to interpret what it means, he wanted them to tell them what the dream actually was, okay? Again, this is, this is not something that they usually did. This was completely unexpected. It has caught them off guard, and we know that's true because of verse 10. Look at that. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's. And here's the problem. Their dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So the Chaldeans highlighted three important problems to the king's request. First, it's humanly impossible Okay? There's no one in the world, they said, who could ever fulfill that request. Number two, it's unprecedented. No great king has ever made that request. And number three, it is a God-sized problem. But their gods don't relate to men. In other words, they had no access to the only potential solution to this problem but their excuses only infuriated the king. See, their job was to help solve his problems. And if they couldn't fulfill his request, then they were of no use to him. So he commanded that all the wise men, not only those who stood before him in that moment, but all the others like Daniel and his friends were to be killed. Or as the king said earlier, torn limb from limb, which by the way, He meant literally. That's what they did back then. So this was a crisis, would you agree? (laughs) It's a crisis. The the king sends forth Arioch. Now, Arioch is the captain of the bodyguard. So this is the heavy, the one who's going to carry out this request. But I want you to notice how Daniel responds when Arioch the assassin shows up at his door. Look at verse 13. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about this matter. 
so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, we agreed this was a crisis, but did you notice Daniel didn't panic? In fact, he spoke peaceably with his assassin when he showed up at the door. And when he does, he asks him a question. He says, why is this so urgent? The implication being, is this really the only and best solution to this problem? And in my opinion, I think this might have been a relief to Arioch. And the reason I say that is because many of the people on that list that he was going to have to go and kill were likely some of his friends, maybe even his family, which I think is why he was so willing to let Daniel approach the king unannounced, knowing full well that this was a very risky move. According to royal protocol at that time, you do not approach the king unannounced without losing your head. The only way you can show up before the king is if you are invited by the king. But Arioch led him to the door and said, this one's on you. But it worked. Daniel convinced King Nebuchadnezzar to listen and to give him more time. He then went to his friends and he said, boys, you better start praying. <laughs> but he does that because he knows, unlike the false gods, the one true God listens and he responds. He understands and he cares. They could go with confidence knowing that truth. They, don't miss this, they were relying on his compassion in order for them to be rescued. Look at how it continues in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel. Prayer answered. In a night vision. Then, in response to that, Daniel blessed God in heaven, saying, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Now we could spend all morning talking about Daniel's prayer because it's incredible. But there's some really important things as we go through this that I want you to recognize. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that this may be, just in my opinion, one of the most God-glorifying prayers in all of Scripture. Daniel recognizes that God is sovereign over history for all eternity. 
He says he's the one who changes the times and the epics. He alone rules with infinite wisdom and strength. No worldly leader has ever, ever risen to power without his permission. And there is no decision that any leader can ever make that interferes with his perfect redemptive plan. Romans 8.28 tells us that he works all things. And let me remind you, that's good things and that's bad things. But combined together in a miraculous, miraculous, uh, uh, ununderstandable way, he works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. What this is telling us is that he is a covenant-keeping God who faithfully fulfills his promises. He is God alone. And there is no one like him. Daniel understands. All of humanity throughout all of history is subject to the righteous rule of God. Our future is in his hands and he rules with grace and mercy and love. So, after pausing to give praise to God for having answered their prayer because of his compassion, by the way. It goes on in verse 26. Look at that with me. Verse 26, the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me... This mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. For the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You'll notice that when the king asked Daniel if he was able to tell him his dream and give him the interpretation, his answer was no. No, I can't. The Chaldeans were actually right about this. There is no human being on the face of the earth who could fulfill your request. However, there is a God in heaven who can. And unlike the Babylonian gods who dwell not among mortals, as the Chaldeans said, there is a God who draws near to man, a God who hears our prayers and responds with compassion. A God who reveals mysteries and foretells the future because once again, he's the one ultimately in control of our future. Now look at verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you and its appearance was awesome. 
The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. So Daniel reveals the details of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and I believe it's because God gave Daniel the the exact same dream that the king had already had. He says that there was a giant stature. It was an extraordinary splendor. It had a, a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, an abdomen of, of bronze and legs of iron. And then feet were mixed with, with iron and clay. So when you think about it, this, this statue was really divided into five distinct parts. And notice that unlike the statue that was made with human hands, the stone that destroyed it was not man-made. Did you catch that? It's really important. So the, the statue was created by man. It was man's invention. But the stone was a work of God. And this work of God is what creates or recreates a new reality that then fills the entire earth. Okay, so that was the dream. Let's look at the explanation beginning in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sun, the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That's number two. And then number three, another kingdom, a third kingdom of bronze will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron, that breaks in pieces. It will crush and break all things, into, all these into pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people, it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure 
forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. As I said earlier, our history validates Daniel's prophecy. Because Daniel, again, tells future events. He tells the king, these are things that are going to happen in the future, but these are things that have happened in our past. So I'm going to give you a picture of what that statue kind of might have looked like, but at least it'll give us something that we can walk through together. So let's do that with each other. Some of it's very clear. Daniel says that the head of gold represents the Babylonian empire. He makes that very obvious. And what I want you to understand here, that this marks the beginning of what the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. This is a period of time beginning with the Babylonian Empire when Gentile rule dominates the earth. And it will end with Christ's second coming when his rule is established on earth. So if you can in your minds, picture that timeline. The times of the Gentiles, beginning with the Babylonian Empire and ending with the second coming of Christ when he destroys all human kingdoms and establishes his, his earthly, eternal kingdom. You got that? So that's the framework that we're working within here. But, but even as those Gentile kingdoms rule the earth, we need to understand that God is still the one who's sovereignly in control. So it's not like a toy that you wind up and just kind of see what happens randomly. That's not what's happening here. God is not disconnected. He is involved in the details. As Daniel said back in his prayer in verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to men, knowledge to men of understanding. So it may have begun with the Babylonian Empire, but in time, all of these great empires will eventually end. The chest and arms of silver represent the next empire in history. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. This kingdom, as you can see in all of your history books, it's right there in front of you, is the kingdom that, is, that conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. Even though, as the Scripture tells us, it was a lesser kingdom. And the reason it's described that way is because it was a fairly weak alliance between two kingdoms, unlike Babylon, that was a very unified kingdom under the rule of one person. And yet, it still conquered them and ruled for another 200 years before they were then conquered by Alexander the Great. Again, Look it up in your history book. It's right there in front of you. This is exactly what happened. This kingdom is represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. And then, in 146 BC, Rome conquers Greece. So that third kingdom is now destroyed by the fourth kingdom, which is Rome, and it became the ruling empire. And it's important to understand that Rome was the kingdom in power when Jesus first 
coming took place. When he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man and dwelled among us. Now, most of the Bible scholars agree with everything I've told you thus far because it is incredibly straightforward and validated in our history. But it's the feet of iron and clay where you begin to see a difference of opinions because some look at that and say, well, that's probably ancient Rome because they eventually became a divided kingdom. Their empire was so vast, they divided it between four different provinces and led by four different individuals of power. But others look at it and say, well, no, the the feet and toes of clay and iron seem to be described as something completely different, like like a future kingdom. Partly because if you look at the passage, there is more time spent on the feet and toes than any other part of the statue. In verse 42, we learn that there are different parts to the kingdom that this represents, maybe as many as 10, as indicated by the number of toes. Verse 43 says that these parts will combine with one another, specifically in the seed of men. And that's an important statement. Because what it's telling us is kind of giving us a clue that this is a combination, a collaboration of different cultures, of different political systems, of different social ideas within the, the scope of humanity. So it's more like a, a confederation of kingdoms. So what it's telling us is that this may be a single empire, but it's not a unified people, okay? It's a single empire, but not a unified people. Everyone is promoting their own agenda. They don't bond together like clay does not bond with iron. Do you get that? Whatever this future kingdom may be, we know that we see that it is destroyed by a stone not cut with human hands. That's why I think this is the future kingdom, because it's the kingdom that immediately precedes Christ's second coming. So unlike the human origin of all the other kingdoms, this final kingdom comes from God. And unlike the other kingdoms that come and go, once here, it's destroyed by another one, it comes, it's destroyed, They come and go. This final kingdom of God, Scripture tells us, endures forever. And I believe, again, this is pointing to Jesus' second coming when the Scripture tells us he establishes his kingdom on earth for all of eternity. So let me kind of give you a a simplified summary, as if you can make this simplified (laughs) as best I can. First, we have the times of the Gentiles. That's the scale that we're working with when human kingdoms rule the earth. It begins with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome. During Roman rule, we have Jesus' first coming. But then, clearly, there's a gap, right? A gap between that Roman rule and this future kingdom that immediately precedes Christ's second coming. The question is, what's in the gap? You are. You're in the gap. It's the church. 
ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliations, those who have been called to proclaim the good news of the gospel, of salvation through faith in Christ alone, you're in the gap. You're in the gap. And you are constantly pointing to the promise of Christ's return. Now, we don't know how long this season that we are currently in will last, but we do know, based on this passage, where it leads, right? It leads to a divided kingdom, a, a final kingdom, a, a single empire with differing ideas, but world domination. It is a formidable kingdom that Jesus finally and completely destroys, and it's at that point that his kingdom of righteousness fills the earth. Are you with me? Now, as amazing that is, it still leaves us some, with some questions, right? Some things that we don't have complete answers to, and that's okay. As we go through Daniel, we'll see some of those answers come to questions that you might have, but here's what's really important. We must let Scripture interpret Scripture. So give it time, and let's see what comes forth. As for now, I would say that what we already have is pretty amazing. Would you agree? <laughs> it's incredible. And Nebuchadnezzar must have thought so as well, because if you look at what he does, he falls, okay, the king of the greatest empire in the world, get this, falls on his face and worships Daniel. Look at what it says in verse 47. Surely, certainly, without a doubt, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. Even this pagan evil king realized that there is one true God who is in control of everything because no one could do what Daniel just did without him. He's in a class all his own. He then promotes Daniel to rule over the province of Babylon, including, by the way, all the wise men who failed to fulfill the king's request, okay? And Daniel agrees to do that as long as his friends could have a place in that responsibility as well. So Nebuchadnezzar agrees and promotes Daniel and all of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to places of power within the city of Babylon. Now, when we started, I said that it was important not to get too lost in all the details of the interpretation of this prophecy. Now, it's important to understand. It's incredibly amazing to see how it has, in fact, been fulfilled. But we need to look beyond the details to see the one whose power and wisdom is ultimately in control, the one who's aware of every detail, in control of every aspect, ensuring the outcome he intends, a redemptive outcome. Don't miss that. It's a, it's a redemptive outcome filled with his love and mercy and grace. I think we see this very clearly in Daniel's prayer, which is why I would urge you to take some time this week and go back and read that prayer, okay? And don't read it quickly. Read it slowly. 
Look at what the words say and think about what the words mean. Reflect and consider how that impacts you. I think this is even a, a great passage to commit to memory and would encourage you to do so. So that when you find yourself in a place where you feel like things are falling out of control, then you go back to Daniel's prayer and you remember who's ultimately in control. But as we close, I want us to take a little time to consider what makes this prayer unique. The first thing is, did you notice how Daniel prays in accordance with God's character? This is really important. Daniel prays in accordance with God's character. He tells his friends to pray for God's what? Compassion. His compassion. His, his compassion is a part of who he is. It's his character. He wants them to align their prayers with what they knew to be true about the God they serve. After all, God wasn't going to rescue Daniel because he owed him a favor. God wasn't going to rescue Daniel because somehow Daniel put God in his debt. They were relying on God's compassion, his undeserved compassion for their rescue. And let me just say this here. That's exactly what happened at the cross. All of Scripture points us back to the cross. Our sin is a prison from which we cannot break free. We are in an impossible situation like Daniel to the point that without divine intervention, we have no hope. We are depending on God's compassion for our rescue, which is exactly what Jesus did. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we learn that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. We are rescued from sin's curse because of the loving compassion of Jesus Christ. So what that means, and don't miss this, is that you are always one prayer away from God's promised redemption. You are always one prayer away from God's promised redemption. And like Daniel, you can take great confidence as you go before the Lord, no matter what situation you be in, and know this, he listens. And like you heard from our testimonies this morning, he's not up there shaking his head going, oh no, not you again, right? He's saying, welcome, I've been waiting for you. And he embraces you with compassion. And he invites you into a life-giving relationship because of him. But here's the key. Just like Daniel, we have to believe that he has the power to intervene. That he has not just the desire through his compassion, but the ability through his strength. You see, Daniel was laying down his life in God's hands. The king was clear. They would be killed if he did not fulfill his request. And Daniel knew he had no power to do what the king 
had asked of him. So he asked God to do for him what he could not do for himself. That's why I've always said prayer is a posture of dependence. It's a decision to surrender your will to God's will so that he might fulfill his purpose in your life. It's a relinquishing of control into the the hands of the one who's ultimately in control, right? So let me give you an example. This last week, I had a difficult conversation that had me tied up in knots, okay? I left that conversation and was driving home thinking the whole time about things I wish I would have said or or things that I needed to say. And, And then I began to prepare for the next conversation that I might have with this person and trying to script all the possible arguments that might come up and how I might need to respond to all of them. And the next thing you know, I'm working myself up into a a big, fat mess. And I need you to know that this is a problem for me, okay? I do this way too often. And the next thing you know, it's like a flywheel. It starts spinning and it starts consuming to the point that it drives me to a place of anxiety. And it interrupts my sleep. And then the ball just keeps rolling down a very bad path. And so on the way home, I said, no, not today. Not today. I said, God, you don't need me to perfect this conversation. You don't need me to script my answers. I can trust in you. And so I'm going to let this go and walk into any future conversation completely unprepared. But I trust you. Because you promise to give me the words in the moment in which I need them most. And you can do things in my heart and in his heart that I have no ability to touch. So this is yours, not mine. Do you know how God answers a prayer like that? He answers it with a peace that passes understanding. I don't have to worry about what the future holds. If I know the one who holds the future. Amen? Like Daniel, you and I both can run to the one who rescues each and every one of us, no matter what situation we may be in, are one prayer away from his promised redemption. I can trust in his sovereign control and rely in his infinite wisdom. Don't miss this. He listens. He's not a God who's distant. He is near to the brokenhearted. He listens, and he listens with compassion. He is faithful to fulfill his promises. And he holds the future in his hands. We all know that human history is filled with failures. But God's future is marked by his redemption. And that will never fail. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this promise the hope that we have and what you have already accomplished. And we can look back in our past and see how it's already been done, which allows us to look forward to the future and know that it will happen just as you said it would. That our future, all of human history, is in your hands and it's being carried forth towards an ultimate end of complete eternal redemption where your kingdom fills the earth, an eternal kingdom where there is no more sin, 
disease, sadness, but only joy. Joy in the presence of God who is among his people who have put their trust in him. And I pray, Lord, this morning with all my heart that there is not a soul in this room who has not come to a place where they believe that that is true. And for anyone who has doubts or hasn't come to that place, would you speak to their hearts this morning and let them know that you listen with compassion and that they can run to the one who rescues. We pray this in your name. Amen.